for people like me are not supposed to first of all speak up so my existence and my expression right now is a serious oxymoron i'm african i'm transgender i'm black why am i talking i should be hiding yeah Welcome to a special edition of Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. For this episode, ahead of Trans Day of Remembrance on November 20, we spoke with our friend Cleopatra Kambugu about trans liberation and didn't watch Dave Chappelle's Netflix special, The Closer. Before we start, we want to thank everyone who has supported us on Patreon. If you've noticed an improvement in our audio quality in the last couple of episodes, you've heard your dollars at work. This is a passion project funded completely out of pocket and through your support. So please check out our Patreon page to see the full list of perks we offer to our paid subscribers. Lori, are you binging or cringing? I am cringing this week, Layla, along with it feels like all of Black Twitter. I am cringing hardcore about the article, Do You Hide Your True Self While Dating?, which is about code switching during interracial dating. It is a New York Times article that was published a couple days ago, and it basically describes the phenomenon of people hiding different parts of themselves, like their natural hair or their Southern drawl, in order to bag a white partner. Uh, And I think one of the reasons people are reacting very negatively to this article is that there's very little exploration around some of the structural racism that might be driving this behavior or why it might be especially common even among Black people who work on racial justice issues to be dating interracially. That's the kind of article I would love to read. But as it stands, this article is pretty close to my definition of pure cringe uh, because it's documenting a cringy behavior in a cringy fashion for a very cringy white New York Times audience. So my recommendation is that instead of reading this, go get tickets to the resurgent production of Slave Play, which actually explores similar issues, but with a lot more creativity and with less of a target for the white gaze. Oh, that does sound cringy. (laughs) Yeah, I got the cringe bumps while reading it. But Layla, are you binging or cringing this week? This week I've been binging. I've been rewatching documentaries that cover the anti-gay movement in Uganda, in part because of our episode topic this week. And it has really uh, been bringing back a lot of feelings and memories from work over the years in Uganda. I know you and I met working in global health, but I first went to Uganda in 2003 Uh, for a study on young people, what they know about sex and how to prevent HIV and how to prevent teen pregnancy, which was a very fraught topic at the time. But I've been binging two documentaries that I recommend to our listeners. One is called God Loves Uganda, which is a terrifying but important look at white American missionaries uh, who go to Uganda to quote unquote save and, and, and spread the gospel. It is uh, a really good link to uh, you know U.S. politics, including uh, homophobia and how they are exported from the U.S. to uh, other countries. And uh, having sat on a number of planes leaving the U.S. on their way to transfer in Europe and then end up in Uganda, you do end up sitting next to large groups of people in matching T-shirts with Bible quotes. And uh, I've always uh, feared those groups, and this documentary shows you why. The second documentary I want to recommend is called Call Me Kuchu, which is uh, a look at the life of David Cato, the 
a first out gay man in Uganda who was murdered in 2011. And I think it's a somber look, but also a joyful look at an incredible activist who was very brave and, and used his own personal story and was out and proud in a way that today's guest is as well. And the other link between David Cato, who's a, a hero of the LGBTQ rights movement, and our guest today, Cleo, is that he was outed by a Ugandan tabloid. Uh, and and murdered six months later. So he and about 100 people were outed in, under the headline, hang them. And six months later, he was killed. And our guest today, Cleo Kampugu, is a, a friend and an advocate who was also outed as a trans woman uh, a few years later. And you can see that it's one thing to understand that someone was outed in a newspaper. It's another thing to truly understand that your life is at stake in that context in Uganda. So Call Me Kuchu and God Loves Uganda are really good doubleheader for someone wanting to understand today's issues a little more. Such a heartbreaking, preventable tragedy. And thank you so much for uh, for that binge. Really hope everybody checks that out. Um, and it's especially timely because there is a resurgence of anti-trans sentiment right now. And Dave Chappelle's The Closer is really just one point of this. But as we both know, transphobia is not new. Trans lives and identities have long been and continue to be a very politically potent rallying cry for people who just do not care very much for trans people. And these bigots have long dabbled in things like biological determinism. They have created false binaries between Black rights versus women's rights versus LGBTQ rights, and they use moral imperatives to justify their anti-trans sentiment. In particular, I find a pernicious strain of anti-trans bigotry to be TERFs, which is an acronym that's short for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminists. And TERFs have risen as not only cultural, but political figures in recent years. This also is not new, but their visibility and power is growing. And really, TERFs is a broad category of people who oppose trans rights. And, and within that category, you could include people who call themselves gender critical feminists. There is a huge strain of this in academia right now that um, really needs to be explored and exposed. You could also include people who think of themselves as kind of the anti-woke trolls. And so you see a lot of strange bedfellows under the turf umbrella, as well as liberal institutionalists who maybe are unwilling to let trans people into prominent women's colleges, for example. And I've written about this for feministing in the past. But overall, TERFs are a very strange deployment of a type of feminism that ultimately aligns very deeply with cis male white supremacy. And they make hate and extreme tactics acceptable to many who may not otherwise engage in such bigotry, but because it's coming from white, quote unquote, feminists, it's allowed and even encouraged. And this is not unique to one country or place. There is definitely a Lexus in the UK going on right now, but this is really a transnational network, to your point about um, what's going on in Uganda. Um, there are political networks, even across the spectrum of right and left, um, that mobilize many different kinds of different figures under this umbrella. You can think of perhaps that white mom who's been 
convinced that she has to be terrified of her child suddenly becoming trans or that second wave feminist who's been told that her deeply held beliefs around the value of women's only spaces are going to be challenged or those spaces might be infiltrated if she takes on a pro-trans rights position. So of course, these are fake boogeymen. And as I wrote in a New Yorker letter back in 2014, in response to a, a widely discussed piece that they published called What is a Woman, which detailed a debate between the TERFs and those advocating for trans rights, these fears are unfounded. And my strong opinion, and, and really what guided a lot of our episode today, is that a feminist who uses hateful logic to deny trans people rights and resources is not a feminist. And my feminism is capacious. And I really hope that all of the cringe watchers out there, um, to the extent that you engage with feminism, um, you see the value of a capacious feminism, which really actually centers and celebrates trans women as, as part of your rights agenda. I hope that that's my feminism. I aspire for that to be my feminism. One of the reasons I'm excited to have this conversation around the time that that New Yorker article came out and you were writing a letter in response, you and I were co-workers sitting in an open work plan, sending each other links by Gchat to all the things that we were uh, consuming, mainly podcasts. But we discovered a web series via an article on OK Africa. And this web series was an incredible look at the life of a trans woman in Uganda and her life love story. It was called Pearl of Africa, which is what Churchill used to call Uganda. And uh, through that web series, we discovered the story of Cleo and today have the uh, privilege of getting to talk to her on this episode. Currently, she is the director of programs at UHI, which is a really pioneering activist fund in East Africa, the East African Sexual and Health and Rights Initiative that supports indigenous rights of sex workers and sexual and gender minorities. We are talking today to Cleo about a range of things. As I mentioned uh, in my binge, she was outed by a tabloid called the Red, Red Pepper in Uganda. And in Pearl of Africa, the web series, you really follow her story, fleeing Uganda and going to Kenya as a refugee and the struggle she's had to return to her country and stake her existence. The timeliness of this debate or this conversation with Cleo is is in part because how we talk about trans people is in the media today because of Dave Chappelle and his Netflix special, The Closer. And uh, we so rarely have the chance to actually listen to trans people as opposed to read all the think pieces that are quoting other people talking about them and talking about comedians, talking about what's funny and what's not funny. And so we really wanted today to be a space to listen to uh, our incredibly articulate and passionate friend. That's right, Layla. And that's why this is a special episode. This topic felt too urgent and timely to box it into a recap of a single episode of television. And we also didn't want to ask Cleo to watch a transphobic rant and have that be the basis of our discussion. So even though we did ask her to weigh in on the Dave Chappelle debacle, and you won't want to miss her answer, um, today's episode is not a typical one, and we will not be talking through the the details of the closer, and um, that's, that's not what today's about. But we are excited to unpack so many of the ideas that are being discussed in relation to the closer and in relation to trans rights more broadly with Cleo, who 
just brings, I have to say, such not only an unexpected perspective, but a joyful one, um, an energized one, and a very oftentimes humorous one to these discussions and debates. And even though Pearl of Africa is no longer streaming on Netflix, Cleo is working on finding it a new home and maybe even creating a sequel. So we hope that you appreciate this conversation with our dear friend Cleopatra Kumbugu as much as we did. Welcome, Cleo. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Laurie. I'm happy to be here. We have a question for you to kick it off, which is just, why do so many people think it's okay to moralize about trans people's existence? And how can we flip the script on them? That is my question to you. How can we flip the script on this entire conversation to have a totally different discussion? I think if other species could speak about humans, we're the biggest bullies, first of all. And I think we've just been on this journey of like eliminating or or having less access for anyone who seems less. So maybe right now it's 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 time to have a conversation around how being trans then means you have less access and how there's been a generational erasure of trans people. But I think other species we've continuously had conversations about exclusion of some people because of who they are and be that you know the color of their skin or you know their gender or their sex or their sexuality or what what religion they believe in and in in my country what tribe you do come from can actually mean something in terms of access um and i'm hoping that one we would align this that the conversation about you know trans inclusion and what's happening right now with all other struggles that we've had as a species around we've overcome slavery to some extent um we are having conversation around racial bias and and gendered bias now what i'm calling the world to look at when it comes to gender is to reframe gender as it actually has always been and i know that's very challenging for so many people because we are changing how we are counting something i know i i come from uganda and we use the british system and we count using the metric system so we count using kilometers so whenever i come to stateside I find it so confusing to count in Fahrenheit. I'm just like, what is this? <laughs> it's really confusing. So to start with, I think we need to change the matrix of how we are disaggregating people based on gender because we are not counting everyone. So we are doing, we are making an error. I think this is an academic question and a policy question and it shouldn't be moralized to say, should we? You see, I think at the first beginning is, are we counting everyone? Then do we want to? And, and I think at that stage is to ask ourselves, in 2021, is, is, it, is this a fair conversation to even have about anyone? Not trans. Is it a fair conversation to deny someone an identity and an ability to exist just because of who they are? Because that's, that's the conversation right now. I mean, if anyone is challenging why I do have an ID, it's literally saying you shouldn't exist. So I think in this era of rebuilding new normals, we should try and see somehow how everyone can be included. Uh, we can have a fair and just world because the previous normals weren't that nice to everyone. And so how can the new normals really be fair and just to, to every human human being? And does that mean that we have to question some things that we used to do? Yes, I, I think for us, this is the moment to say, is the world round or flat? So I'm sure the first person who ever questioned if the world, world said the world was round, they were like, no. No, it's not possible. It doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't. It's just the same way it didn't make sense that planes could fly if they're made of iron. It doesn't make sense because it's not the popular paradigm. So even having this space is to say, 
expand your thinking beyond what you've always thought. Let's ask why the apple falls from the tree to the ground. Let's not just think things are because they are, because maybe they aren't. And that's a very challenging conversation because it sits at the horizon of what we think is normal and what we think is normal is what everyone thinks is normal. Just having a space like this to speak about human conversation that sit at the periphery of the mainstream conversation is important. Will that have challenge? Yes. Because it's not how normally we look at people. People like me are not supposed to, first of all, speak up. So my existence and my expression right now is a serious oxymoron. I'm African. I'm transgender. I'm black. Why am I talking? I should be hiding, yeah? So there's, the script has already been flipped in terms of someone who shouldn't have spoken speaking. So it's, it's, for me, it's, it's like a Rosa Park moment. Why is she sitting on a bus? How dare she sit on a bus? And I'm saying I'm sitting, I'm, I'm sitting because everyone deserves to sit their ass down at some point. And I would like to sit. I deserve some rest. I'm posing to the world. Why not? Why can't I have the same access like everyone does? Why can't I love like everyone does? Why can't I have access to education like you do? So I'm not asking for anything peculiar. My ID has, it has nothing different with any other ID. It says who I am so that I can get accurate, dignifying, humanizing treatment like everyone else does. And that's really a basic need, you know? And a basic thing that everyone should have. If you don't have it, I think that's a wrongness. We've been convinced that rights and civil liberties are things we have to negotiate and we unpack. I think that truthness is they should never have been taken away from the first place. They are not negotiable. So that's unsettling. And we could just speak about how that in itself is a flipping of a huge script of, okay, they are asking for their rights. And I think this, this is how it must have felt when my first ancestors in the U.S. said, I will not pick cotton. I asked to be treated. Mm. I can't be anyone's property. And I'm, I'm sure that slave owners were like, how dare you say that? You cannot ask for this thing. I'm doing that. And so it's not peculiar to this moment. It's always happening in history that once in a while, people are tired of just being excluded and they say things that people don't expect them to say. And they're like, how dare you say this? And I'm hoping more people would come on board. So it's a count me in situation that more people come, come on board and say, me too, me too, me too. And... The script is flipped, not just in my head, so I don't think I'm crazy or something, but things might be the way they are, but they are not fair. Amazing framing. If you're crazy, we're all, I'd like to be crazy too. <laughs> I, I just want to go back because I know not everyone is as familiar with, with the incredible work that you do as Lori and I are as super fans who've been following your advocacy and, and your personal story. But, you know, you just said, I have an ID that matches who I am. And that... That's that's not something to gloss over. That was a hard won political fight. And if if I'm correct, you're the first trans person in Uganda to have a national ID card that represents your gender and your name uh, in a way that's accurate to who you are. Tell us about how how you got to, to that place. What did it take to to get that card? And also, what does that mean for other trans people, not just in Uganda, but in other countries? So to say one thing, I'm, I'm 35 years right now, and I just had my, my first SIM card like that enabled me to make voice phone calls and send an SMS to my mom and do stuff three months ago. Because to be when you're a Ugandan citizen and to be able to own like a SIM card, you should be able, that speaks your name, you know, and be able to transact business because we use our SIM cards to also transact business over mobile money. You cannot do that unless you have an ID. 
you cannot get an ID unless they'll allow you to get an ID, which means you sort of have to go through your parents because your parents need to have attached like their IDs to support that they're your Ugandan parents, you know, like to prove your citizenship and in that place where you stay. So to start with, do not, if society and your parents do not understand what it means, if you haven't had this journey with them, or if you don't have that courage, like the courage to know that you're fine nonetheless, because I think that for me, that's another thing, the fact that I don't feel wrong in my body. And I think my journey is helping the world match up with what I've always been. And I'm not convincing people that I'm right. I'm just saying, hey, wake up, smell the caffeine. I've always been this. I'm not transitioning from anything. I'm just an obscuring what already was. I'm trying to decode myself into a language you can understand. If that means me taking hormones, if that means me having surgery, if that means me getting an ID, I'm trying to translate what I've always been to what you can understand. So I'm decoding my existence. But that doesn't mean that code didn't exist before. I've always been here. Um, and it's been a difficult journey because, you know, there's no support from family. So for one, if if I hadn't transitioned with my family, I wouldn't have been able to ask my dad to give me his ID. If I hadn't been able to travel to Thailand and have surgery, I wouldn't have been able to give the government officials documents that spoke about my change of gender. Because up to right now, we're still reducing gender to what you have between your legs. It's very inaccurate. But that's what it is in Uganda right now. So I had to prove that, you know, my genitals have been able to transition. And it's sad because as a biologist, I know there are eight characteristics of sex. And none of them is more important. That humans think one is more important than the other is a, is a social flaw. It's a social flaw completely. Uh, your genitals are not who you are. They, I think we can all agree about that. But yeah, we still live in a moment where... You have to prove who you are by your genitals and what they look like. So certain genitals should only be on somebody. So it was really hard. And I think for my end, it, it took me being brave enough to know that I can do it. I should do this. I will do this nonetheless. And I think in the end, for me, it boils down. It doesn't boil down to really bravery. It boils down to I'm tired of living a life that doesn't affirm me. That's, that's not true. That's a double life. That's just hard. Why can't I? Because for me, that's the question. Why can't I have a national ID? Why can't I walk into a hospital and be able to access a mammogram like every every woman does? Because I couldn't have a mammogram before because my ID read male. And healthcare is gendered. So if your ID reads male, you can't walk to the OBGYN, you know, to ask for a mammogram or a pap smear. So for one, I could have gotten, you know, breast cancer or a cervical cancer and only because I'm not allowed to have that kind of service for me, for myself. And if I'm 35 and I'm, go- I'm turning 40, and these are things I'm worried about. I'm on a charity, and so I'm worried about what effect that has, you know, on my breast growth and stuff like that. But how can you justify denying life? So if you're a health service provider and your duty is to provide life, how can you play God and choose who deserves, who you should give life to and who you shouldn't? And for one, that is wrong, that... In occupying public office, folks are using their personal value systems that are not they're not ubiquitous to all humans to then decide you deserve life, you do not. That is wrong and goes against the Hippocratic oath. And so it's just to say, you know, this has been happening, it's not right, and it needs to stop. And just listing the different places where it has been happening, including the fact that you know airports are sites of violence, that trans people have to get undressed. For people to prove who they are. And yet we do have so many countries that do have biometric systems. Why is this happening right now? Why isn't it being addressed? 
you know, such things. And I know it will be a very long conversation, but yeah, how can we tackle it one by one and have structural changes that around barriers that have inhibited access for people like myself? Just to follow up on that, I think that's one of our challenges, that the, mm-hmm. the, the problems are structural, they're vast, they're intimidating, but also they can be so complex or yeah. so so foreign to people who haven't been forced to confront them. That One of the things that I admire so much about your advocacy is... And, you know, and a number of your colleagues in Uganda, because, you know, I was I was reading an interview with you recently before this interview and Out Magazine called Uganda one of the most homophobic places on earth. If anyone follows LGBTQ issues, they've heard of the quote unquote kill the gays bill, the the criminalization of uh, sexual activity among gay people in, in Uganda and also this framing of of anything LGBTQ as being a promotion of something morally wrong. It, that's an incredibly risky and violent atmosphere. How is storytelling and, and sharing all of this personal side of your life and impact part of your work? And, and how does that play out in your work with other advocates uh, across Africa? I think for, in my country for a very long time, it was, it's true what you say, it's so scary to speak. And I think that's, that's what perpetuates violence, the perpetrator makes you believe that should you open your mouth, it's the end for you. And so then it comes a journey of a few people saying, no, I can't do this. So I'll let me speak and see what happens. And then other people coming on. But I think we are, we are, we are literally experiencing this moment in Uganda right now. Ever since I, you know, I put this out on my Instagram and there's been news about this, my government has said nothing about it. And there's been a total moratorium around anyone ever reporting about this in any national media. So it's never been touched anywhere in a newspaper or news or anything. So it's it's been surprising for them. It's a surprising moment that someone who, who should not have spoken has spoken. It's also surprising for my community to say, let's wait and see what happens to Cleo. There's a lot of people watching to see what then will happen. My parents and other regular Ugandans who might not be trans are also watching to see, let's see what will happen. So the next couple of months will really set precedent as to where this is headed. I'm hoping that, you know, this will be like a, a me too moment where other trans people will feel like, you know, they can come out and claim their space by being visible. I understand if they can because visibilization for trans people means it's, it's, that is, it's a question of life or death or safety or no safety or having a job or not. So I'm hoping those who can will because Without having trans voices from the continent, from Uganda, speaking the way I do, we then leave the narrative dominated by other people that are speaking all the wrong, horrible, untrue, incomplete things that stereotype us in very unnuanced, wrong ways. And unfortunately, that's what everyone believes. So it, it ends up being a cultural conversation, a religious conversation, and it really isn't. So this is very refreshing for very for very many Ugandans, the flipping of the script conversation that really ties it up with so many other struggles Ugandans. Because again, I say, this is not a trans issue in itself. Even as, you know, speaking about it being something that's a trans issue, you know, is important to, you know, to, to situate it there. But there is just a generational erasure of anyone who seems problematic in my country. Whether it's that it's that you the tribe, the tribe, the ethnic group you come from, your political affiliation, your religious affiliation, you know, your gender, it's always been a problem. And and the fact that um there's been a domination of a narrative that seeks to undo 
our work and what we are saying by saying that, you know, it's a Western import or it's an issue of, of genitals is, is what we are, is what we're doing here to say that, no, it's not about what Cleo has in between, you know, her legs. It's about, um, can she have a dignifying education like everyone? Like the question I'm asking is, did I have to go through one extra semester at the university because a lecturer actually failed my internship and gave me a 49% and the dean of students knew about this and did nothing about it because there is no protection for people who are transgender. So he, the only thing I got is I'm sorry. But my parents had to pay money for me to do a paper that I had passed. And she, the fact that she, she could tell me to my face and say, you know what, I'm failing you because I don't like people like you. And the fact that she's a professor and a professor of sociology in a college of science. Everything made sense. Like, you're a professor, you teach sociology, you know gender, so you're, you're not ignorant. So you're deliberately refusing me access to something you know I, you shouldn't have done. And I was 21. She abused me as a child to tell me I was wrong. The fact that, that she did that and she tarnished, I, I literally had to self-therapize to say I'm fine, I'm complete. But the fact that I was sent to school to be educated and mentored, and someone stood there to say, you shouldn't be that. Are these the things we send our, ch our, our children to school to be taught? That they should be given undignifying uh, education and be treated undignifyingly by teachers? And that some teachers can choose not to teach some children because they don't want. Why do you join a profession if you don't want to teach all children? I think if, if the education sector should find itself not being able to accommodate some children, it should then restructure to accommodate all kinds of needs of all students. So it's it's really such thing that this is just one thing, the education sector, that this happened in, you know, Makere University, one of the top universities in the world, and in particular in my country, a government university. And we do have a sexual assault policy and that it never thought that there was a trans person and that they, should they be assaulted by a teacher who should have protected them. That's what I'm challenging. We are not going back to that time where we're moralizing around people's existences. If we are, then we are really in a very bad situation. Right now, as a yeah. people, if you're rebuilding new normals and deliberately justifying the erasure of some people because we don't like who they are. We are not building it's... inclusive futures. We aren't. We simply aren't. And I also want to recognize the two-sided coin of visibility because, you know, to Layla's point earlier, your visibility opens up so many doors for the community for this liberation struggle. At the same time, it can make you a target. What your experiences have been like within feminist spaces, and I don't need you to name names, but I do need us to have this conversation and have a little wake up call just about how feminism has failed on this issue and failed to live up to the intersectionality that it loves to claim. And I don't think there's any bad feminists. It's just the notion of feminism and the weaponization of feminism. I think like any other way of thinking, paradigm, ideology, you can weaponize it. I think feminism has been weaponized the way the Bible has been. I think feminism is perfect <laughs> as it is. I think people have chosen to weaponize it to their own advantage, you know. We really need to have a really deep conversation around feminism that doesn't stick to identities. And I think... This has really been the journey for feminism that whoever has been the holder of this power to include others then decides who should come to that table of inclusion. 
So at some point it was black women cannot be part of feminism. Uh, you know, if you're not a Christian woman, you cannot be part of feminism. It's really been a conversation around who can be part of this thing called feminism. That's an amazing thing. And so right now we're having another conversation of oh, are trans women women? Can they be part of fe- can are they feminists? And Feminism isn't a gendered conversation, even as much as it uses a, a, a gendered lens to speak about disparities of access. But it goes way deeper than this to, ju- to just then say, who ain't in the room? And how can we create access for everybody by addressing structural barriers? So honestly, for me, is the current holders of feminism and not holding it well by not keeping that door open and stewarding it and letting other people that are not in the room to be in. Because that's what feminism has done. It's enabled people that haven't been in the room, haven't been on the table to have a voice and for them to be completely heard and not selectively heard. The fact that some feminists have, you know, have weaponized feminism and used it to exclude people, some of those people being trans, is not a new conversation, but it's not something that is right either way. So it's not new. In fact, they are doing the amazing work of patriarchy by excluding transgender people by myself because they are perpetuating access. In Africa, we say when you've lost it, go back to the beginning, you know, Sankofa, start where you lost it. Actually, let's go back to the basics and say, it's not about trans people. Are we practicing inclusive feminism for everyone? Yes. I heard this from Grace Lavery, who's an associate professor at UC Berkeley and a trans woman, and she put it like this. Rather than inquiring and moralizing around whether trans women are women, what we should be asking is, how do women get invested to act against their own interests? And who decided it's white women's job to police the category of woman? That's a question that feminists should be asking each other. By having, you know, women, cis women um, leading the struggle of, of, of an existing trans people, patriarchy just got itself a good face. It's, it's a, for me, it's a PR tactic. So if you ask me where, where, you know, where patriarchy is acting is in that way of lying, of lying to the movement that we are threats. We are not a threat. Trans people are not a threat to womanhood. We're not a threat to feminism. The fact that we are not exclude, we are not included. The fact that this is something that you know feminists do practice and think it's right, like that, you know, like the toughs, actually is the hugest injustice to you know the feminist movement that we've been led to believe that one of us could be a threat. It's not a new tactic. It's a very old tactic of war that your enemy, your friend is your enemy. To be made to believe that is, is a fascist ideology. So for me, it's nothing beyond fascism, you know, um, uh, putting minority populations against each other. And it, it has worked in the past. I'm sad it's working right now and feminists cannot tell that this is fascism. But the fight for cis womanhood can be won against the fight of, of, of trans womanhood because all oppression is interconnected. And the same thing that polices my body and my genitals is the same thing that polices women's bodies. It's the same system. And so let's not break it down to examples of, okay, we're speaking clear because it doesn't get us anywhere. It's just to say that can people have full ownership of their body and that not, be ha- not, that not have to be something that is legislated about? Why is the constitution in people's bedrooms? And I think if we go back to examining our history and the mistakes we've made, then we would really move away from this myopic conversation that we're having right now of our trans women women and using metrics like the ability to give birth or picking at womanhood because those similar struggles have been struggles for cis women where some women are not considered woman enough, cis women. So 
If you're saying that a trans woman ain't woman enough because she can't give birth, are you saying that same for a, a, a woman who might not be able to conceive, but they are cis woman, you know? Or decide... Or a black con- woman is not woman enough. Yeah, because, you know, yeah. Laurie, there was a time when it, black people were not considered to be humans. To start exactly. with. Exactly. To start exactly. with. Like you and I could not sit right now and have this compassion with Layla because how would she... She can't talk with non-humans, you know. That was once a thing. And for me, it's bothered to say that just because something is, just doesn't mean it's fair. It's so important, as you say, to, to go back to the beginning. Because I think for a lot of people, it's easy to dismiss some of the issues you're facing in Uganda as something that happens over there that's completely disconnected from our lives in the U.S. And even though we have all kinds of uh, gender and, and trans liberation challenges in this country it's still easy to say oh no it's not as bad as over there but i you know when when you said that some of these tactics are tactics of war it it makes me think about the lasting impact of colonialism because you know the the anti homosexuality legislation in uganda didn't come out of nowhere uganda had already criminalized lgbtq people from a holdover from British colonialism. I think all British colonies inherited buggery laws from England, and you see that playing out in Jamaica, in all the places where where violence is, is affecting trans people most in the world and just LGBTQ people in general in the world. It's a legacy of colonialism. I know in your day job, you, you do funding for advocates working on gender and sex worker rights. And I've, I've really been following the reframing of how we address these problems from organizations like Uhai and others to think about it as closing civic space. They're not being space to have these conversations, which is a much bigger challenge than just talking about gender. And that that civic space, the, the space for open discussion and debate to have civil society thrive, that's not organically shrinking. That's not climate change. It's shrinking in part because of opposition and hate being exported from the U.S. and people coming to countries like Uganda full of money and venom to to try to change laws and influence other countries. And I'm just wondering how you feel the connection to, you know, U.S. grown opposition. Do How are you seeing those links? Wow, that's a very interesting question. Uh, well, one, as a Pan-Africanist, I feel, and, and someone in philanthropy, for me, being in this field um, as a Pan-African is to facilitate the reparations projects, which is, you know, making the Global North pay for that generational damage. And I think speaking decolonization for me is the ultimate decolonization for our continent is the re-exportation of the, you know, the social reprogramming that we, that went through in our heads of, of saying that you're Kenyan, you're Ugandan. These are not words we had. We don't. Ha- we didn't have colonial borders. Uh, they didn't mean anything to us, or including to say that you're more than the other because you look different. These things are what constructed the Rwandan, uh, the Rwandan genocide, putting one person against the other as being more important because you know the colonizer saw them as being more important than the other or more beautiful, based on Europeans you know, standards. And, and so for me, then it, I guess for me, then it, as a Pan-Africanist is that if we're able to re-export back homophobia and transphobia where it came from, I think that's what God exported. Uh, we got homophobia and transphobia and all sorts of phobias exported with the missionary projects. You know, a project that came to unite actually became more divisive. Um, 
And another thing I speak about is, you know, we should question even up to right now, um, if you are a person of the clock, when when you take on a pulpit and you spread, you know, venom, hatred and violence, yet for me, churches and places of worship are supposed to unify and mediate. So that's where my mother should have gone. But I know she knew not to go to her priest because her priest would have judged her, her parenting and would have probably sent me to an asylum for correct for some correction therapy because that still happened in my country. People can still be sent for corrective therapy because they've been wrongly programmed by being trans or, or, or gay or something that's non-popular. I think there is those things that, you know, Leila need to happen. And it's an arduous, long journey that starts from... Uh, the matrix put it better and plugging from the matrix you know the matrix has told us things up a particular kind of way and they really aren't and i guess i took the wrong pill <laughs> and woke up and realized oh and it was never a conversation about whether i had to ask for my rights for my government and i think that's why i asked for these things in a way that some people might feel like it's rude or too courageous but it's because i'm like what do you mean what do you mean there was ever a conversation whether i deserve human rights and dignities and freedoms all sentient beings, by the fact that they exist, should have human rights, freedom, and space. And you know, and the fact that there was ever a conversation, but I think it's a truth everyone should know that our rights were never anyone to take away or to be split like a cloth. Like I think maybe we all took the wrong pill. But uh, <laughs> if, if 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 I had to take the wrong pill with anyone else, I feel like we're we're in good company. I just want to ask a quick question that is. Uh, sort of tangentially related uh, that you made me think of earlier when you were talking about your access to healthcare, uh, because I was talking actually last week to another friend, uh, who, not in Kampala, but in Uganda, another trans woman saying that uh, access to HRT has been really limited because of the pandemic and, and lockdowns. And I'm just wondering, what is access to healthcare like big picture right now? for you and for others, not just hormone replacement therapy, but in general, what what are the issues that you're pushing for more inclusive healthcare access? Yeah, for one, it's, I, I don't know which thing you're talking to, but I, I don't know of any public health system or hospital that provides, you know, hormones, HRT for, for trans people. You literally have to get them at, um, maybe from a pharmacy, like a CVS, like a local store, which is good and bad. It's bad because, you know, we still I still live in a country where you can just get almost any medicine from a pharmacy without a prescription. And so people are self-medicating and taking, like, ways of regulation. So I don't think that's how we should, you know, if we are to get healthcare, that's how it should be. The government does have, you know, reproductive health programs that already are importing the same things that trans people need to transition, you know, contraceptive, medication, different dosages, but still the same hormones. And I, so I think there is a way in which leverage a pre-existing infrastructure like that one to get access to those services. But that's not happening. I would say where we are right now in Uganda is a deliberate erasure and really an inform misinformation about what it means to be trans, who trans people are, what are their needs. And, and the conversation has been lost at why you don't deserve the right to be had. So from the trans people's side is no one is really taking up this conversation because they've been convinced that they are wrong and shouldn't speak. And the few people who get to speak, you know, get either, you, you, you know, you either, you know, what you say that aren't you scared for yourself, you know? What you said. So if you think through this and think through, you know, your safety and, you know, you need to go back to work, you need to have a place to stay, you know, what will your landlord feel about, you know, seeing this on their on their feed? 
if they don't know you're trans. So we still live in a world where being trans is, is, is something you don't want to tell someone you are. You need to hide it. And the thing I could liken it to is, is back in the day when if you are an interracial couple in South Africa, you literally had to hide your relationship. It's not something bad to like someone who has a different color of skin than you do have, but you have to hide that detail because it's not safe. So I think it's very difficult for us to have a progressive conversation like you asked for if either part, one party has been convinced that if they should speak up, and one time this was black people, and one time these were women. And you can't imagine, if you could do a piece on this, you can't imagine the number of untruths that were said about women when they weren't allowed voice. And so that's what's happening right now. Trans people aren't allowed voice. There are few people that are taking center stage are being scared that do not do it. And then you have other trans folks who are like, let's wait what happens to Cleo and see if we should. And someone has to put their first foot forward and then say no and change the narrative. And this is what you and Laurie are doing, you know, providing that space for these unheard conversations to be had. At the very least, it disturbs the narrative as to what is the body of knowledge and starts a conversation. And people start talking, change starts happening. It won't be easy at first. It won't be safe for some people, but it's a conversation. So it no longer, it no longer exists in the era of not known, not talked about. So for me, it's can we sustain this conversation long enough for people to to unlearn and unlearn new new things that they didn't know about transness and about gender. And I mean, at some point, I'm hoping we'll just laugh at ourselves and say, why did we even think <laughs> that it's yeah. important to think about this? Because honestly, it is not. It's really not important. I should be left to go and practice my molecular biology in the lab. I would love to be part of the people that are fighting COVID in Uganda, but I'm here having this conversation with you. And I love talking to you, Lorian and Leila. But I love practicing molecular biology. And I wish I was part of that team that was helping come up with a vaccine or a rapid test. This is what I started, but well, we are here. And if humanity thinks this is where I should be, so I should play this role. I'm sure there are very many other, you know, scientists that are doing that work. But I wish I was just a genetist that's just looking at DNA to solve food security no. issues for Africa because that's what I'm interested in but I'm here doing this work because it's equally important absolutely and no no offense taken Cleo I I wish and hope for a day within all of our lifetimes where you are just you know in your little biology world and not having to have a care in the world about these issues because they're already handled but you know the earth is round trans women are women who deserve rights like everybody else like these two statements are the same and you know one thing that personally is a huge pet peeve especially among my fellow feminists or my fellow leftists it's like when they overthink it it's with the over intellectualizing and the over theorizing that really bothers me because we're just talking about real people's lives and I, I, I really I think that's also something we need to battle when it comes to this topic but let me just say we have covered so much ground. You are brilliant, Cleo. I, I can actually tell that you were trained in science because your mind is a beautiful thing. But we cannot end this interview without touching on something that's been in the news. The documentary starring you, The Pearl of Africa, was at one point streaming on Netflix. Netflix, yes. Do you care to comment on <laughs> the situation with Netflix that's going on right now where they aired and then refused to remove Dave Chappelle's The Closer. Do you care to comment on their handling of the staff pushback against this? 
And relatedly, what are you working on these days? And, and how can more folks support your work? Where can they find you? And how can they signal boost your incredible efforts? Well, I, first of all, I love, love, love that Netflix had that thought to put the Battle of Africa on its platform. 2015, yeah. At that time, it was the first trans story from the continent to speak about African stories, queer stories in such a positive light led by a trans woman. So that was really radical. I don't know if they intentioned it for it to be like that. But will that happen? And we can't take it away from, you know, Netflix. But I wish... <laughs> I wish there was an addressing of, you know, gender disparities when it comes to artists who are trans in the field of film, um, or artists who are non-cisgendered white male, or just cisgendered male when it comes to the film and art industry. We honestly aren't getting the same kind of pay. And this is another area I would say it's happening and it's on right, but it's happening. Someone would say, well, it's normal, so we should let it be, but it's on right. It's on right that, you know, female and trans artists get paid differently or to speak specifically to Dave Chappelle's situation is how easily can I put this what Dave Chappelle is doing is commifying violence this is the best thing that U.S. knows how to do it it takes one thing that's done to a white person and the same thing done to a black person and calls them different names and we are supposed to believe they are different but it's all the same it's 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 something wrong that you've done Uh, and so in Dave Chappelle's case is Commifying trans violence and, and, and making it a moment for us to laugh. One, too soon, and I don't think it should ever be that we are commifying trans mothers. Just today, and you can check out my Instagram at Zulai, will I sit on a board that counts how many trans people get to die every year because of transphobia, either because of murders and suicide. There's been, there are so many murders that are happening globally that we have to count them every year and, you know, um, display them on a clock on November 20th. This year, I decided to do it early anyway. But can we acknowledge there's a trans genocide happening right now? Now, should it have been any genocide, a mass killing of people because of senseless hatred? Would we have allowed for Dave Chappelle to make the show he made and say it's fine if it wasn't trans people? Hell no. Why are we allowing it for trans people? Is the same reason we're allowing violence for some people and not others. So what Dave Chappelle said probably wouldn't have passed if it was targeting a white male population because they are still important. But um, if it's targeting, you know, a transgender person of color or transgender people in general, you know, people are like, no, it can't pass. We can't still joke about it, but you can't because that has implications. I think Dave Chappelle as an artist has a responsibility to humanity as an artist who has that audience to leave a mark even as he's profiting of our lives. I wish he had the responsibility to at least, even besides Netflix, to say what I did was wrong and this is how wrong it is. Like really disconnect his his art from being real and calling it completely fictional. Like saying things like, these are not my views. You know, there are things he could have said. There are things Netflix could have said in support. But the fact that Netflix leadership said that about Dave Chappelle and said, no, we won't remove that, that speaks about how transphobia protects itself, even in places like Netflix. So there's a structural protection of trans exclusion and trans violence, and it still goes on at that level. This is why this is important. And I'm happy for such spaces because I still have to, you know, you have to negotiate being in that platform and, and know that you're going to pay horribly. The Palo of Africa, the story of love, and at the very minimum, I hope it would create a platform for other people to find it easier to, tra- to, to, to be trans in a world that's difficult to them, 
to at the very least be able to access you know hormonal replacement therapy or surgeries but okay so many things haven't been possible because it's just difficult for trans people to access these things with all that structural barrier that you mentioned like you know netflix protecting a dave chappelle and protecting the things he's he's exporting which is transphobia and giving it a platform who does that <laughs> i don't know how to say more about that but yeah i'm hoping there will be a time when just because something happens it's called out irrespective on on who it's happening to because what we're doing right now with dave chappelle is saying that it's justifiable for violence to happen to some people and that's what netflix is saying without saying that's what they are saying that it's fine for us to laugh about some people's misery because they don't count but should it be a, a man a cisgender white man or someone who's considered important then no we have to take matters seriously and that's a huge thing and i think the world should note that that transphobia sometimes looks like that in very subtle ways that don't seem like transphobia but it is transphobia how would you commify murder period period i didn't know the word commify before but it's taken on a very unfunny meaning <laughs> and it's uh <laughs> i love your framing i don't want to miss the other part of laurie's question which is where can we find your work how can we lift up and, and support your work can people still see the documentary version or the web series version of pearl of africa unfortunately no i'm actually trying to partner with a couple of people to see that that pearl africa has a home on our platform we produce the pearl africa but i'm not an artist i'm not in film but I'm hoping that Palo Africa finds a new home that it gets to start a conversation. I hope it finds itself in different um, schools of education. It starts a conversation even at that level in school of gender not being a binary because we just take it for granted that it's a binary. Why? We, we, we freaking exist. We are here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it can find a new home. We're also thinking of doing a follow-up of the Palo Africa because the Palo Africa only cut off from the point where... I traveled back from Thailand back home, so it never captured the pit where I got a new passport or a, you know the, an ID that affirms me, and everything else. You know my mom and what it was like being taken care of my mom as I healed with my brother. You know so many of these things never got to be discussed. I'm hoping to find um, another person who's crazy enough to hold this story and have it told. I'm not an easy protagonist. <laughs> Because I participate in my scripting, but I'm hoping that someone would be able to hold this story and nuance it. So if you're that person and you're listening, please reach out and, and let's see what um, what we can do together. You heard it here, a call for directors. <laughs> yes. And I, I would argue that you are the ideal protagonist, Cleo. So thank you for, I think you just said it all. You threw down on this on this interview. So just appreciating you, you are a star. Ruth's Refuge is the only organization devoted to providing furniture and home essentials to refugees and asylum seekers rebuilding their lives in New York City. Even after arriving and securing an apartment, many families are unable to invest in furniture and other home goods, often sleeping on the floor as they work to pay off debts and establish a new life. My mom is a Ruth's Refuge volunteer and recently shared an update that in just the past few weeks, she's been able to help families from Central America and Afghanistan, as well as several LGBTQIA individuals fleeing oppression in their own countries. And as she wrote, it's quote, wonderful to see the joy and relief in people's faces as they select essentials such as cribs, bedding, dishes, pots and pans, and basic furniture to outfit a new home. 
We hope you'll visit ruthsrefuge.org to learn more about how you can help by donating your time, money, or shopping their wish list. I think it's time for our cringe fire. Yes. So our first question is, is there a show that you are binging right now? Pause. I love pause. Love it. Imagine it more. Yeah. What is something in the world, in society, that you are finding super cringy at the moment? Sex. I hate that we ha- we bring constitutions to the bedroom. Like, you can't do this. Pleasure this. I can't. I don't like this pleasure. Like, yeah, sex. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see better portrayed in film, TV, literature? I think that that people people are not one thing, that we don't have gay movies, but people movies where people have sex differently. I hate that I have to go to an LGBT section to watch content where people, you know, are people who look like me exist. I think we should just have movies and there can't be anyone. I don't know why we are having a huge conversation whether internals is, ha- one of the cast in the internals has to be, you know, portrayed as a same-sex couple. Like, why? <laughs> I don't care if my superhero is gay. I'm non-gay, but I don't care if they are. Like, yeah, so why are we having a separate session for black people and white people? Like, urban and normal. Like, yeah. I think we should just have art and in all its diversity, non-separated, you know. 100%. I mean, (laughs) God forbid you're a gay black cowboy. I don't know how you you would be categorized. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Okay, this is our last cringe fire. Do you have a favorite scene mm-hmm. depicting sex or sexuality? And it could be in any genre of TV, film, or literature. I would still love to say pause. I think India Moore had gone, Angel, Angel, I think Angel was getting married and they had gone to this store to buy clothes. And this guy said, your money ain't good enough here for us. We don't want it. And then, you know, Mother Superior all came down on this guy and said, well, I'll take, uh, well, I'll, I, she, she ended up buying the store. <laughs> it's like, if you can't tell me these dresses, I now own this. And yeah, that felt really sweet. I wish every trans woman could be able to feel that moment of buying that place that says you can't have this, you can't eat from here. That feels really sweet. And so I'm a huge advocate for economic empowerment for people who are, you know, structurally disenfranchised and some of those are, you know, transgender people of color. I think rights are not to be begged for, but should just be taken. And one of that is if we are economically emancipated. So you are part of blackness and queerness. Perfect. Ending. All power to the people. Agreed. 100%. Cleo, you are a rock star. Thank you so much for sharing with us, for cringe watching with us. And uh, we just so appreciate your light and, and we can't wait to see where you go next. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was so great to see you. And and as Lori said, you are just a master connector of all of the dots. (laughs) This has been a beautiful constellation. Mm -hmm. uh, And I love ending on economic empowerment because we have a lot of work to do and we're going to have to pay for it. We need to. Yeah. 100%. Amazing. Cleo, you're the best. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to our incredible guest, Cleo Kambugu. Judith Walker created our wonderful cover art and logos, and our editor is Karen Wychan. Dallas D.L. Engram created our theme song. Our interstitial music is by Siddhartha Corsis. You can find them both on SoundCloud. 
And once again, we just really want to plug our Patreon. The subscriptions are up. People are involved. We love shouting out our squad on the podcast, and we love giving you all early access to our episodes as well as live events and our much coveted Cringe Watchers special edition swag. So go on over to patreon.com slash cringe watchers. Check us out there. That's the best way to support our podcast. And we will always remember that you did so early. 